Okay, I want to say thank you um, for last Sunday because uh, I'm sure you noticed I was just a little bit nervous uh, last Sunday, especially about the end of uh, last Sunday's message because I knew going into it, there's no way you're all going to agree with me. There's no way. And, and believe it or not, preachers like it when people agree with us. <laughs> preachers enjoy agreement because that's usually when we get compliments. If you think about when you like a message, you know, you want to go tell the preacher, like, that was a great message. And you share that message with friends, it's usually because the preacher said something that you really agreed with. And they said it, what, like, I really, yes, I agree with that. I, everybody needs to hear that. So preachers don't like it when you know, we're sharing something that we know a good number may disagree with, or we know that this is going to upset some people or that kind of, so, you know, but I shouldn't have been worried because if anybody knows how to disagree gracefully, uh, it's this church. And uh, I was, I mean, I can tell you the number of uh, nasty Facebook messages, uh, nasty text and nasty emails I got last week was zero, not, not a single one. Um, I had a few asking for clarification. I had a few complimenting the message and I had a few going, you're wrong on this one, brother, but we still love you and uh, we'll see you next Sunday. And I love that about this church. I love that we have the freedom here to disagree, uh, gracefully. I started a new book this morning and I'll probably be preaching from it at some point. Uh, it's called Grace in the Gray, A More Loving Way to Disagree by Mike Donahue. And um, I, I read the first chapter and I was like, well, this is good and this is interesting, but I'm not sure that this guy can teach me anything that I haven't learned at Murray Hills. So I just want to say thank you for that. Uh, and if, you, if this is your first Sunday at Murray Hills and you're like, what in the world is he talking about? You've got to watch last week's message. So uh, <laughs> I won't go back into it. But um, today, that goes into a little bit of what I'm, I want to talk about today because I think one of the primary characteristics of good faith is... Um, not demanding lockstep agreement on every issue and realizing that our, our unity centers on Jesus alone. And so today we're kind of moving into the reconstruction phase of this series. So we've spent a good month talking about deconstruction. Like, and throughout it, I've said, you know, deconstruction is actually a good thing. I mean, it's, it's a healthy thing. There, there's, it's, it's a part of growing up. It's a part of uh, the faith process. It's, it's many ways, deconstruction is the door that leads us to a deeper experience of faith. And there's some things we need to deconstruct. Like there's the sins of the church, the cultural and political wars, you know, legalistic righteousness. There's some things that we need to deconstruct. But we can't live in deconstruction forever. Like we can't, like at some point we have to start reconstructing healthy faith. It's not, deconstruction is not meant to be a place where we spend the rest of our lives. It, it may be a season, it may be a, you know, a step in our faith journey, but at some point we have to reconstruct healthy faith. We either deconstruct all the way back to atheism and leave faith altogether, or at some point, and if you're watching this message or in this room today, you're probably at this point, at some point we have to figure out how am I going to piece this back together and how am I going to have a good faith moving forward? How do I reconstruct healthy faith? And I hope you've noticed uh, throughout this series, as I've preached, I've tried to, to use the qualifier good faith. I've tried to, anytime I've talked about it, I've tried to talk about good faith or healthy faith. It's in the series title, Building Good Faith in an Age of Deconstruction. And the reason for that is 
we don't want to just build any faith because all faith is not equal. We want to build good faith. And that's the, 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 where we're going to start today as we talk about reconstructing faith is we have to understand if we're going to reconstruct our faith, we have to understand that we want to reconstruct good faith and not bad faith. There's some parts we do want to leave behind. There's some parts we do want to reject. We, we, want, to, we want to embrace the healthy parts and the wholesome parts and the loving parts of our faith and, and reject the harmful parts of our faith. And this may be a new concept to you because many of us grew up without this distinction. You know, you didn't hear much about good faith or bad faith. There was simply faith or no faith, right? Faith or no faith. Faith is what I had. No faith is what anyone who disagreed with me had. <laughs> okay, that was the distinction. Faith was us and our group. That's what we had. And no faith was anybody who thought, worshipped, uh, believed, practiced differently than us in our group. They had no faith. And so the Protestants, we had faith. The Catholics had no faith. The evangelicals had faith. The mainline progressives had no faith. You know, the Calvinist, if you grew up in that tradition, the Calvinist had faith. The non-reformed had no faith. Um, the charismatics had faith. Look at our worship. The non-charismatics had no faith. Um, you know, you go on forever. The Baptists had faith. The Methodists had no faith. The Church of Christ had faith. The Episcopalians had no faith. You know, that, that, it's not that simple. It's really not that simple. Um, there's good faith and bad faith in any church and in any denomination. And um, there, it's just, it's not a part of what group you are. It's the practice of that faith. And uh, I want to show you, these categories are recognized in the Bible. But before I show it to you, I want to give you some examples of what I'm talking about. So I want to read just a little bit uh, from... Uh, Brian McLaren's book, A Search for What Makes Sense. And he wrote this back in 1999. So this is back when he was almost conservative. Um, he was at least widely accepted in evangelical circles at this point. But it's one of my favorite books for people struggling with faith. And he makes this distinction in the first chapter between good faith and bad faith. And he deconstructs uh, this statement right here. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. And that's one of the most, uh, you know, common statements you hear when people start talking about faith. And, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. And he says, personally, I don't think these people really mean what they're saying, at least not literally. They couldn't mean that it's okay for a crazed cult leader to sincerely believe his sincere followers should join him in sincerely drinking poisoned Kool-Aid so they can end up in heaven together sooner rather than later. They couldn't mean that it's okay for white supremacists or anti-Semites to believe and practice their beliefs as long as they're sincere, which I say with sadness and disgust, they often seem to be. That couldn't mean it's okay for totalitarian dictators to suppress religious freedom since they are sincere in believing that religion is an opiate for the masses and a menace to their regime. They couldn't mean it would be okay for sincere religious fundamentalists to control the lives of millions through sincere intimidation, sincere censorship, legislation, and threats of violence. They couldn't mean that it would be fine with them for parents who believe that life is meaningless to raise their children with a nihilistic philosophy of life, freely offering children drugs, for example, or allowing them to experiment with vandalism or violence, not caring about their education or motivation, abandoning any pretense of moral guidelines since they sincerely believe that nothing really matters. 
the kinds of people I've heard talk about this way, about sincerity, would never agree that these implications of their statement be taken literally. And all he's saying is, it's not that simple. And we know that intuitively. We, we know that all faith is not equal. We, we understand that there is good expressions of the faith and there's bad expressions of the faith. And Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 23. I'm not going to read everything Jesus said about it. But if you look at Matthew chapter 23, Jesus deconstructed the faith of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, interestingly enough, were a group that shared the same faith as Jesus. They were in the same faith tradition as Jesus, but Jesus says they're bad faith. Don't follow them. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them uh, brood of vipers and snakes and blind Pharisees and blind guides. And he issues these seven woes to the Pharisees. And he, he's saying, don't follow them. Because, and they sincerely believed what they practiced. The, the, I think the, the Pharisees sincerely believed that they were upholding the truths of their religion. But Jesus says it's bad faith. And throughout the Gospels, you see this uh, comparison and contrast between the faith of the Pharisees which Jesus said was bad faith, and that's often characterized by self-centeredness, legalism, hypocrisy, greed, and he contrasts it with the good faith of uh, the disciples or the good faith of Jesus, and, when he's, and that's characterized by humility, love, and grace, and, and putting others first. My favorite example is this story right here. This is Luke chapter 18. This is a parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18, 10 through 14, and Jesus, you're familiar with this, You've heard it probably read many times before, but look at what Jesus is saying in regards to highlighting the good faith of one and the bad faith of another. Two men went up to the temple to pray, and one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance he would not even look up at heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I mean, clearly in that story, Jesus is, is using this, you know, setting up this comparison between these two. And, and in our day, we know, like, well, the Pharisee was the bad faith and the tax collector was the good faith. In the first century, they would have been expected, that was the total opposite. They would have been, the tax collector was identified with sinners. The Pharisee was identified with the religious. What Jesus is doing is actually saying the faith of this sinner is bad or good faith and the faith of this religious person is an example of bad faith and so this is all throughout scripture if you have time this afternoon read uh, acts chapter 9 through 15 and you'll read the deconstruction stories of peter and paul because peter had to go through a deconstruction as to who was included in the kingdom because he didn't think Gentiles were included in the kingdom. And there's this vision and Cornelius. And it's, I mean, it's a great story. And then Paul, had to, he was killing people that he felt like were not part of the kingdom. And so there was this Damascus Road experiments. And, and Paul spent three days and the scales fell from his eyes. I mean, he went through a deconstruction experience. And then you hear the deconstruction of the church itself in Acts chapter 15, where they had the Jewish council. And so this has been going on since the, Jesus has... Really, you could almost think of Jesus' ministry as a ministry of deconstruction and reconstruction. He was deconstructing the bad faith, the way that the Jewish people and the Jewish religious leaders specifically had perverted the faith. He was, he was deconstructing that bad faith and introducing a good faith, a new way, a new command, a new way of following uh, the Scriptures. And so they had to reject the old way that they were following the Scriptures and accept this new way 
of Jesus thinking. And so that's all we're talking about when we talk about reconstruction. We're not talking about some new age thing or some you know, modern twist to this. I mean, we're just talking about scripture. This is what Jesus did. And the church has continued to do this in fits and starts throughout its, its entire history. And it'll continue to do it throughout its entire history. You know why? Because churches are made up of a bunch of sinners. And so we, we have this bad habit of, of putting our self-interest above the interest of others or you know, ego getting in the way or pride getting in the way. And, and so we're gonna continue to have to do this throughout the history of the church. But I wanna be a champion of good faith because that's what Jesus was. And I want our church to be a champion of good faith. We won't do it perfectly. We have not done it perfectly. Um, but to the best of our ability, I want, we're following Jesus, and I want to try to follow Jesus to the best of my ability. So what, what we're going to do today is I just want to give you some examples, some characteristics of each. And um, then you can, you can dissect all of this in your small groups. So this, like, I, I just want to say, like, here's some examples of bad faith. Here's some examples of good faith or characteristics, not really examples. You can come up with your own examples because when you start giving examples, it gets dangerous because, you know, because <laughs> that may be bad faith. It turns into gossip about other churches. So uh, I'm going to give you characteristics of bad faith and characteristics of good faith, and then you can, you can talk about the rest. So here's a, uh, and these are coming, I'm getting this from that right there. I should have put that title up there earlier, but I'm, I'm, he gives like nine or 10 of each. I'm not doing nine or 10. I'm just kind of adapting some of what he, he talked about there. So here they are. Uh, bad faith is based solely on unquestioned authority. So if I believe because some, an authority figure told me what to believe, I believe because that authority figure told me what to believe, I don't question, I don't think for myself, uh, I just mindly believe what I'm told to believe. I, I think that's bad faith. Uh, and this happens in progressive and in conservative circles. It doesn't matter. This happens in all denominations, you know, that you're told to believe a certain thing, and if you don't believe that certain thing, then uh, you're out. There's even a movement, and I tried to find it out last night, but I, was, I just couldn't find it. But I know there's a movement within some really large churches right now to consider the, the pastor as you know like God's anointed leader or God's apostle or God's prophetic teacher like you know they're, they're like there's just one leader instead of a group of leaders there's just one leader and you so the entire church must align behind the pastor's teaching and the entire church must align behind their vision you cannot question the authority because that is the God-ordained leader of the church that's not biblical it's just not. In Acts chapter 17, verse 11, Luke commended the Berean Christians because they questioned Paul's authority. <laughs> he said the Berean Christians, he said they're, they're more faithful than the other Christians because they examined the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. And I say if the apostle Paul, if his authority can be questioned, then your pastor's authority can be questioned as well. So bad faith, based on solely unquestioned authority, that, I think that's bad faith. Second one is uh, that bad faith is based on pressure or coercion. Uh, Jesus never forced anybody to follow him. Jesus never twisted any arms. Jesus never manipulated people into following him. He did really exactly the opposite. It was always a choice. And so um, this can take the extreme form of cults, and there's lots of documentaries out there about that kind of stuff where, you know, like they control every single aspect of your finances or your relationships and that kind of thing. Or it can take the less extreme form and the more common form 
of congregational peer pressure. If, if you don't think what we think, then you're not really welcome here. And sometimes that's done overtly, and sometimes it's more likely to be kind of passive-aggressive. But, you know, if you don't think what we think, you're out of here. And it might be that you actually aren't sure. You may think what they think, but you just asked the wrong kind of questions in Bible class or asked the wrong kind of questions in small group, and somebody reported you to the authorities, or, you know, you, were, you just challenged the wrong authority. And so, so bad faith is... is based on pressure and uh, coercion. Number three, it appeals to self-interest or base motives. And we could spend a lot of time here because there's a whole genre um, of churches called health and wealth. You know, the health and wealth gospel, if you've heard of that, or the prosperity gospel. And it's the idea that if I follow Jesus faithfully enough, He's going to give me everything I want. So he's going to bless me. He's going to favor me. He's going to protect me. You know, uh, if I follow God faithfully enough, he's going to make me rich. If I follow God faithfully enough, he's going to heal me of this disease or, or whatever it is. And I, I think the health and wealth gospel is bad faith. I don't think Jesus teaches anything like that at all. And I think it's a perversion of the scriptures. Um, there's a great book about that. Uh, Kate Bowler wrote a book called, um, oh, what is it, Blessed. The History of the American Prosperity Gospel. So if you grew up in those kind of churches or maybe you've been involved in, in kind of health and wealth type gospel, you might check out her book. It's, it's a really, really good read. Uh, number four, Jesus talks about this one in Luke chapter 18. Bad faith is arrogant and unteachable. When we think we have a corner on the truth, when we think everyone else that disagrees with our version of the truth is a heretic, um, you know, be careful. When we think that we have nothing to learn, we, we have learned everything there is to learn. We have the answer to every question. Be careful. Uh, Peter Earns calls it the sin of certainty. And I'm, I'm well aware, I'm well acquainted with the sin of certainty. <laughs> I, was, I was probably a practitioner of the sin of certainty at one time in my younger days. And, um, you know, if being right is more important than being loving, that be careful. You're getting into some dangerous territory. And then the last one I'll tell you is that bad faith is dishonest. And this is all of Matthew chapter 23. If you read Matthew chapter 23, the Pharisees are described as, you know, whitewashed tomb. On the outside, hypocrisy is a form of dishonesty, right? That's, hypocrisy is dishonesty. So it's trying to, to present yourself one way, knowing that on the inside you're not that way. And um, the Pharisees were, you know, they're whitewashed tombs. They, on the outside, they've painted the tomb so that it looks nice and clean. On the inside, it's full of dead man's bones. Or they were obsessed with cleaning the outside of the cup and dish, but on the inside, it was full of greed and self-indulgence. Or they were straining gnats and swallowing camels. You know, they made sure that they followed all these little small rules to the, to the letter so that nobody could accuse them of being unrighteousness, but they neglected the weightier issues of justice and mercy and, and love. Um, Jesus never commended anyone for hiding or covering up. That's actually who he always called out. He commended people for their transparency, and he commended people for their honesty. So that's, that's a few. That's to get you started for your groups. You can come up with more. You can talk about some examples in your group if you want to. Just please don't mention any names or churches. Um, let's talk about good faith, and I'm going to let the Bible speak to this pretty much. Guess what? The Bible has a lot to say about good faith. I mean, that's, the Bible has a, a whole lot to say about this because it's wanting to nurture good faith in us. So let's look at, at three of these. The Bible is, hum, I mean, good faith is humble, teachable, and inquisitive. 
So I think good faith is rooted in, just like the, the tax collector when he went and prayed before God, you know, he, was, he was humble. His humility is the thing that Jesus recognized as part of his good faith. And I think you know, being aware of how little I know in relation to how big God is and uh, being aware of um, how little I know in relation to all of the teachings in this book and all of the, you know, the historical context and the nuance and all the things in here and being aware that I have, you know, like Job, that was good faith, uh, if you read the book of Job, because he finally just comes to the conclusion of, I don't know, you're God and I'm not. Uh, I'll just trust you. And that's, I mean, because when you get comfortable with the fact that you don't know everything and you get comfortable with answers like, I don't know, or tell me more, or I could be wrong, I think that's, I think that's a characteristic of good faith. Here's the way Jesus said it. You, you saw Luke 18, but in Matthew 23, right before he picks apart the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, Jesus says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And Jesus repeats this several times throughout his ministry. So humility is a, a critical component of good faith. Jesus also said in Luke 18, uh, Jesus, uh, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And I, I read, you know, there's a whole lot we could read into this, but I read this as a, you know, a lack of arrogance and humility. And, the, you know, children are, for the most part, teachable and inquisitive. And, and, and you know, they don't, they don't think they have all the answers because they know they don't have all the answers. They're kids. And somehow as we grow up and get into our 20s, we think we have all the answers and then we get into our 50s and we realize well maybe I don't <laughs> and so I mean that's I think that's something what Jesus is saying here and my favorite one though is is uh, Paul first Corinthians 8 he says knowledge puffs up while love builds up those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know but whoever loves God is known by God I love that and the reason I love that is because that's written by a guy who at one time his entire faith was based on being right his entire faith was based on his knowledge, and he took great pride in his knowledge. And then after he met Jesus, his entire faith was based on being loving. And, and that's the thing that he wanted to talk about. Second one, uh, good faith is rooted in love. I'll read you that guy's words. This is the guy we just quoted from right there. If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy but don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have a faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I am nothing. Pay especially uh, close attention to this part. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. That's the Apostle Paul again. You, you probably recognize that. Uh, that's from the message version. Because if you, if you want to hear it just a little bit differently. Because I've already used this verse a couple times in this series. And I'm going to use it again. Fair warning. Uh, here's the other one that he says. Galatians chapter 5 verse 4. One of my favorites. Uh, he says, for in Christ neither our most contentious Religion nor disregard of religion amounts to anything. What matters is something far more interior, faith expressed in love. The NIV says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. And so, you know, it's, it's real simple. Faith without love is not good faith, no matter how right it is, no matter how much good it does in the world, you know, no matter how many people it serves, no matter how correct its preaching is, no matter how inspiring its worship is, no matter how much good service it does out in the community, if it's not rooted in love, it's not good faith. 
And that's that not me saying that. That's, that's Paul saying that. That's the Bible saying that. Last one is this. Uh, good faith is putting others first. And I'll read to you again from, from Paul. You're familiar with this passage as well, but this is out of the message. If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. And this is Paul writing to a church, the church of Philippi, and this is his encouragement to them. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but he didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, becoming human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. That's who we follow. How in the world would church leaders or pastors think they get special privileges when that's who they follow? How in the world would any Christian think, I get special privileges and because, because of who I am, when that's who we follow? That, that is our example. And so that is the ultimate example of good faith. I, and I'm not, you know, you can apply this to this church as well, you know, but I, when I, if somebody's worried, you know, talk to people that are, they feel like, well, I don't know if I'm in a good situation or I don't know if this church is, you know, kind of the, where I need to be. I always just read that passage and if, Try to look at your church or your pastor in that light. And you do that with us. If, I mean, if, it, if, it, if we don't align with that, then something's wrong. And I, we will not align with it perfectly. You know that. But if we don't, that's, that's what we're trying to do. So good faith, this is what, that's what it looks like. And if you, if you want to know where we're going the next three weeks, there's the hint. Good faith is humble, teachable, and acquisitive. It's rooted in love. And it puts others first. That's what we want to reconstruct. That's what, I'll put it this way, that's what we have to reconstruct. Uh, that we have to reconstruct that faith. Because I really truly believe, um, and I know church uh, pastors tend to use hyperbole, uh, I really believe the future of the church is at stake. Because there's two questions that people ask when they're deconstructing. Uh, one is, is Christianity true? And everybody asks that question at some point in their life. Because we grew up in churches, we grew up with pastors and Sunday school teachers and parents telling us to believe certain things about God and Jesus and the Bible. And at some point in our 20s, 30s, or whatever, we start going, is that true? Is that really what I believe? Is it, are the things they told me true? And that's, that's a process that all of us have to go through. We have to wrestle with those kind of, those, I call them thorny theological questions. And so we're asking, is Christianity true? But the other question and I think this is the question most young people are asking today. Is Christianity good? I can get comfortable with the truth of it, but is it good? Is it something that's good for me? Is it something that's good for this society? Is it something that's good for the community? Is it good? And I mean, we, we live in a postmodern age. I think people are more comfortable with unanswered questions now than ever before. That's the beauty of a postmodern age. I mean, people are comfortable with the supernatural. People are comfortable with the mysteries of God. People can say, I can get comfortable and I can understand. I can believe that Christianity is true, but I'm not sure that it's good. 
And that's the question that we're kind of tackling in this series, and that's kind of where I want to go with, with, with the reconstructed faith is, if we're going to reconstruct a faith, not only must it be true, but it must also be good. Because if, if it's not good, then we're not really truly following what Jesus asked us to follow. So that's where we're going to go the next, next few weeks. And uh, let me say a word of prayer, and I'm going to have uh, Ebony wrap things up for us. Okay, let me pray for us. Uh, Father, I pray you'd be with us as a church as we move through uh, this and, and be with our groups as we dig deeper into this and we ask questions in groups. And I know that some groups uh, are, are dealing with... Uh, you know, some of this brings up pain and emotion of, of some past church hurt and those types of things. And so I am aware of that. And God, I ask that you, you be with our groups as they, and our group leaders as they navigate some of these issues uh, together. And most of all, what I pray, God, is just help us to be people of good faith. Help us to be like that tax collector. Humble, contrite, have mercy on us because we are sinners. And help us to lift you up and diminish ourselves. I ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.